Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Chapter 21, Hermione's Secret. Shocking business. Shocking. Miracle none of them died. Never heard the like. By thunder, it was lucky you were there, Snape. Thank you, Minister. Order of Merlin, second class, I'd say. First class, if I can wangle it. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Caspar Terkyle. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. To graduate from Harvard Divinity School, you need three credits of a language. And so that's three classes of work. I was lucky enough to be raised bilingual. I speak Dutch and English, and I'd spent a year studying in Germany. So I had decent German. And as any good European, I have a little bit of French, just for those romantic moments. So I thought this conversation would be easy. I'd talk to the administration and indicate that my languages were just fine. Thank you very much. I don't need to fulfill those credits, do I? Well, it turned out that I did. So I thought, okay, fine. If you're going to make me do these credits, I'm going to do them in the easiest way possible. I'll choose German. I'm pretty good at German. And I read the handbook to see that actually attendance in no way contributes to your final grade. So I tell the German instructor, hey, when's the final exam and the midterm dates? I want to get them in my calendar because that's when I'm showing up. And she kind of looks at me very bewildered and says, excuse me. And I explained that, you know, my German is good enough to take these exams right now. I should really be exempt. But uh, here we go. I'll take the exams and we'll be done with it. This did not go over very well. We had a very frank conversation where it was clear that neither of us was really going to budge. And so the professor kind of escalated the situation to the dean. And this dean and I were friendly. And Basically, he saw that I wasn't going to move and suggested that why don't we do some reading over the summer? We'll do a little translation, little conversation, and that can count towards some of the credits. And then I'd organize another independent credit with a professor in the German department to actually do something that was interesting to me. And so all in all, I fulfilled my three credits by doing one piece of translation, a lot of fun reading, and one essay. And I tell this story because... I didn't use a time turner, but I was definitely banking on a lot of white male privilege and chutzpah. But I think what was interesting to me was that in having conversations with other people who were struggling with the same challenge of these languages, because not everyone finds languages easy. I guess what could have been a crisis for me, I just kind of pushed my weight around a little bit and made it go away. You know, there's this great quote that Michelle Obama gave a couple of years back where she said, being a president doesn't change who you are. It reveals who you are. And I think crises are the same. So this kind of mini crisis about my language exam revealed me to be a pushy bossy boots who wasn't going to take no for an answer. See, it's so funny because you told me the story over breakfast at the beginning of our friendship. 
And I thought this story said about you, he's a man who knows his convictions and will not back down. And it's how I fell in love with you. I just arbitrary rules drive me insane. I was like, I speak the language. I don't need to do three credits. Yeah. And I think that your story also speaks to the fact that crisis is in the eye of the beholder. Harry and Hermione are hearing Snape talk about what's going on, and they are getting the sense more and more that this is a crisis. Whereas for Snape, he's like, I'm going to get the Order of Merlin first class. One person's crisis is another person's glory. And I feel like, yes, for me, language at HDS was a crisis. And for you, you were like, girl, bitta, no problem. <laughs> Ooh, Casper, can you do this week's 30-second recap in German? Auf Deutsch, ja, natürlich. <laughs> <laughs> or in Dutch. That sounds noch makkelijker zijn. Okay. <laughs> really? In Dutch, not Deutsch. Okay. Okay. On your mark, get set, go. Okay, in dit hoofdstuk zien we dat Harry en Hermione de time turner gebruiken. En ze gaan een aantal uur terug en kunnen dan uh, Sirius en uh, Buckbeak on- laten ontsnappen. Uh, dus, maar ze moeten niet gezien worden door iedereen, dus het is heel moeilijk. Um, Oké, okay, dus ze gaan snel holle 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 uh, door de grote deur. Uh, Hagrid is daar uh, en, en, en uh, het, is waar, ja, het is allemaal heel triest en, en de executioner komt. En dan Buckbeak ontsnapt, hoera, maar ze moeten, ze moeten hide in the forest. Oh no, it's 30 seconds, so much still to happen. Oh, that was harder in Dutch. So what I learned from that is that my Dutch is really good. Yeah, I think I used a lot of English words. <laughs> but that's very cool in Holland. You see adverts saying like, we gaan naar de beach. Like, <laughs> we're going to the beach rather than just saying, we gaan naar het strand. Like, there's a perfectly good Dutch word for that. But so I was just doing cool Dutch, just so you know. Oh, yeah. yeah. Just with English words. I just thought that I spoke Dutch. Okay, so your 30 seconds needs to cover a lot of ground for our Englishnessness because mine sounded like gobbledygook. <laughs> So you're ready? Yep. And we're doing it in Japanese. Yep. Three, <laughs> two, one. So something that I know that Casper didn't get the chance to mention is that Harry the entire time is like, I think my dad cast the Patronus. And he doesn't understand, but it turns out that while he's um, hiding in Hagrid's hut and is waiting for the whole thing to happen, he goes out and he casts the Patronus. And Hermione is like, that's really advanced magic, Harry. And so the key things is that Snape gets completely undercut. The kids do the whole time-turner thing, and they get free serious, and they still let Pettigrew get away, and Buckbeak, and they save two lives. I think our listeners in Japan will be able to vouch for the fact that my Japanese was flawless. I'm sorry to our English-speaking listeners that you got two 30-second recaps in foreign languages this week. Okay, Vanessa, let's dig into this theme conversation. So we're thinking about crisis. And it really struck me that in this chapter, there's so much going on, so much chaos, and people are responding to it in different ways. I wanted to start with Madame Pomfrey. Love of my life. Really? Oh, I love her. I thought you were with Hermione. Hermione. Yeah, well. Things are complicated. Mm Mm-hmm. Pomfrey is trying to instill discipline over both the patients who are in her ward, Ron, Hermione, and Harry, who she brings these enormous pieces of chocolate to and literally has to break off bits of it using a hammer. I just freaking love that. But she's also trying to instill discipline over her visitors, at first Fudge and Snape, who are kind of talking outside, and there's all sorts of Sturm und Drang. And then Dumbledore comes in, and Dumbledore counters her authority and overrides it. So I wanted to think about how... Crisis immediately takes away our control. And I think here we see someone trying to reinstate control over crisis to make it more manageable. Yes. And I think that clarity of purpose helps with that. I mean, one of the big crises that I 
remember really seeing in my life is when Hurricane Katrina happened. And you saw a lot of people respond in very different ways to that crisis. There was just an onslaught of people wanting to do good deeds and donating things that were completely unnecessary to the crisis. But then you had first responders who really knew what they could do to help and flying in from all over the country in order to help. There were doctors who were getting helicoptered in to help. And I think that when you are in a crisis and have the gift of being able to offer an actual service, claiming your authority is one of the most heroic things you can do. And Madame Pomfrey is one of the few people who can actually help. And she's just doing her best to claim as much authority as she can, given that she's one of the few people who can still make a difference in this really crisis-ridden situation. Yeah. And I think that the question of authority and clarity of purpose are really intertwined there because the Minister of Magic, right, who's probably the most senior magical being there is in the country, is being told that he needs to leave by Pomfrey. And at the same time, then you get Dumbledore, who is Pomfrey's immediate boss, whose purpose is not actually about the well-being of these children. It's about a much bigger picture of fighting Voldemort and various moving pieces on the chessboard, including Lupin and and the minister himself. And he is very, very insistent. You know, he says, I need to see Mr. Potter and Miss Granger alone. This is where I want to meet with them, not here, right? You need to leave. And then he says to Madame Pomfrey, he calls her Poppy. And I guess the first time I read that, I was thinking, oh, he's being friendly, but maybe that's not how you read it. No, I mean, I think he's being manipulative and he's stripping her of her title. Right. right? He's not calling her by any honorific and instead is like reminding her, I have the authority to call you Poppy. So I think that he's reminding her of her place and the fact that he has more authority. I do think she would have had a valid argument to say back to him in this situation, in this room, I make the rules. She doesn't. And who knows the complicated reasons why. But I think that there could have been a real argument about, given the nature of this crisis, who has more authority? Well, this is interesting because I think it's precisely in times of crisis that lines of authority are so necessary. And authority doesn't mean there's more and more power the higher up you go necessarily. Right. It's not a one-to-one correlation between authority and power. Right. It's more complicated. I think of friends who've served in the military who say your job as an officer is to push as much power and decision-making ability down to the troops who are right on the ground. The further you are away from the action, the less you know about what's going on. So you need to empower people to make decisions. But at the same time, in a crisis, there is no time for conversation and you just have to act on trust. And I think that's what Madame Pomfrey is doing here, she's like, I know Dumbledore is not a fool. So if he's pushing me on this, it must be really important. I may question him later. Now's not the time. Okay, I'll give you the room. And it turns out that Dumbledore is dealing with a much bigger crisis. He's like, the kids are going to be fine. Maybe they'll faint again. But a man's life is on the line upstairs. Right. So Pomfrey is right. And I mean, maybe the other thing that Dumbledore is doing by calling her Poppy is reminding her of their relationship. Mm. It's, you know, like just a tug on the ear, a signifying moment of like, Poppy, we're friends. I need you to trust me in this moment. Oh, I like that a lot. Authority is one thing, but he's relying on friendship to facilitate this really important thing that needs to happen. And that's what counts in a crisis, right? Like the people who you turn to are the people who you trust the most. It's it's the relationships that you've built during times of peace that matter most in times of war. Speaking of trust in a moment of crisis, what I think is so interesting is the moment between Snape and Dumbledore here. Mm. So 
Dumbledore is about to subvert the authority of the Minister of Magic. He's about to try to find a way to free Sirius, even though Sirius has been found guilty in the court of law and has escaped prison. All of these authoritative things have come down against Sirius. And Snape knows what Dumbledore is up to, right? He is an inkling that Dumbledore is about to subvert all this authority. And so he tries to stop Dumbledore from subverting this authority by saying Sirius Black showed he was capable of murder at the age of 16. You haven't forgotten that, headmaster. You haven't forgotten that he once tried to kill me. And Dumbledore answers, my memory is as good as ever, Severus. And I think that this is using a first name as a reminder of authority. Snape has just called Dumbledore headmaster. We've heard that Dumbledore takes very seriously the students calling Snape Professor Snape, right? He's constantly correcting Harry, and yet he calls Snape Severus. But what's interesting to me about this moment is Snape should trust Dumbledore. Snape was a Death Eater, and Dumbledore, in his wisdom, has chosen to trust Snape and to promote Snape to everybody else that he's not a Death Eater anymore. I trust him and everybody just needs to trust that if I trust Snape, everybody should trust Snape. And yet Snape does not return that trust to Dumbledore that if he wants to save Sirius, it must be for a good reason. And I think that that's because Snape's crisis is an existential one. It is a crisis of Sirius is a bad guy. I am a good guy. I am a victim of Sirius. Sirius is a murderer and has been capable of it since 16. And so his, like, acute existential crisis in this moment where he's about to finally be seen as the hero that he knows he is in all of these ways is being snatched from him. And I think that that existential crisis completely subverts his trust in Dumbledore that Dumbledore has rightfully earned. Oh, my goodness. There's so much there. And I think in addition to the existential crisis, there's some real practical gains for Snape, right? There's going to be this newspaper coverage about how he's this hero and he's going to be awarded a class of Merlin. That he feels like he deserves for trying to save Harry and for being a double agent. And it's like, well, maybe I'll finally get my recognition here because I can't get it there. Right, right. The other thing I want to just think about with Snape is that he is really trying to use a crisis to his own advantage. You know, we right. There's always like chaos in a crisis. Exactly, and the formal rules and norms of an everyday procedure are challenged when there is a crisis. Like a different set of rules takes place. So him following Lupin down into the Shrieking Shack—that's not normal. Him using the invisibility cloak—that's not normal. He's trying to use what's going on to press home his advantage. And a little bit of fan crossover here, but there's this great line in Game of Thrones where this very devious character called Littlefinger says, chaos is a ladder. And I think that's something that Snape is trying to practice here, right? He's trying to use this moment of crisis for his own advantage. Um, New governments are formed after war, right? right? Like, things are absolutely built after moments of crisis. And Snape in this crisis is thinking that he's going to be able to reframe himself as a hero of Hogwarts. And that is just being snatched from him. Right. And the actual winner of this crisis is totally Dumbledore, right? He's subverting the minister's power. He's letting two people who've been condemned to death escape. Okay, Buckbeak isn't a person. Um, (laughs) But he is using a magical tool and using two children to kind of execute his own justice. You know, in some ways, we need to start thinking about 
who does crisis benefit? And who can we strategically empower to benefit from crisis? And I think that the person who we want to empower in this moment is Dumbledore because he has the broadest context. He sees the well-being of the students. He understands what is at stake for Snape and to some extent respects what's at stake for Snape. But most importantly, he's like, but two lives are on the line, two innocent lives are on the line. And so I am going to take advantage of the chaos of this crisis. And what I really love is that he has such clarity around the restrictions of what he is capable of and what he's not capable of. He is somebody who understands the way that the wizard justice system works. And he could say, minister, I would like to appeal. I have also spoken to Sirius and believe him. But instead, what he says is, I have no power to make other men see the truth or to overrule the minister of magic. And he knows that McNair has gone off to get the Dementors and that he doesn't have time. And he is saying, like, I'm just going to take this authority upon myself to not follow the letter of the rules and to do what is right anyway, which I really admire. I hate when in a crisis somebody sticks to the rules of non-crisis time. And it's like, don't you understand? We're in a totally different situation now. Those rules don't apply. Like, I have to get three language credits. These rules don't apply to me. Exactly. (laughs) Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. The other thing that really strikes me that I loved about rereading this chapter is thinking about how, in times of crisis, as you say, like the normal rules don't apply. And I can see how that's shifting Harry's perception of what might have happened when he fainted, surrounded by the Dementors, you know, next to Sirius, because he thinks he's seen his father. And he knows the logic of death, right? His dad has died, is not coming back to cast a Patronus from across the lake, but he just can't get that thought out of his head. And so when he goes back in time, he leaves Hermione with the hippogriff in Hagrid's hut, and he ventures out into the forest to see who it was that cast the Patronus. And like a part of him really thinks he's going to see his dad again. And so like the idea that in crisis, 
maybe the very rules of life and death or gravity. Suddenly we're questioning things that we've always seen to be true. And of course, ultimately, Harry realizes that it's himself that's cast the Patronus and that he'd seen himself. But that really struck me that the rules don't apply in many ways. That exact thing occurred to me in regards to the time turner. The time turner had always bothered me. It feels like this logistical cheat in the books. But this time, I was thinking about how you hear things about how in a moment of crisis, a mom can lift a car to get it off of her baby. Your adrenaline is running and just impossible things are suddenly possible when people feel as though they are in a moment of crisis. And I was like, oh, time doesn't really exist in a linear fashion in a real moment of crisis. And how that can often feel true If you need to accomplish something really complicated in a minute, all sound can just sort of disappear and you can focus and you can get more accomplished in that one minute than you would normally be able to. And it's as if time has stretched in front of you. And we we know that time is malleable in that way when there's something we're looking forward to that night, the day will last forever, right? Or when you're doing something unpleasant, the day can last forever. And when you're doing something really fun, you're like, that went by so fast. So I love the idea that because there are lives on the line, that it's like, well, time doesn't apply. And yet it's not totally changeable. They don't get to redo things. They don't get to interrupt the things that already happened. They can't just grab Pettigrew. They can't just grab the invisibility cloak. But they can, in this moment of crisis, do extraordinary things. Yeah, that really struck me as well of how much restraint they show in not trying to catch Pettigrew, which demonstrates extraordinary maturity, but also extraordinary clarity of purpose in a crisis. Because, you know, in an everyday situation, we might think about the three things that are on our to-do list. When you're in crisis, there's only one thing that you can do, and you've got to do it, even if that means there's some really significant, painful things that don't happen. And I just think about emergency first responders, right? And you're trying to triage a situation. There's three or four, maybe 20 people who are injured lying on the floor. You're one person, you can respond to one person first. And you have to analyze, okay, this person has a broken arm or this person's very vocal, but actually this person's hardly breathing and that's my first priority. Even more tragically, you might have to say, it's too late for this person, I actually can't help you, right? Which is what Harry has to deal with in this moment of being like, well, it's too late, Pettigrew has already been released and that's just the way that it is. And yeah, I mean, those moments are just so tragic where you have to say there's actually nothing that I can do here yeah I mean that's what a crisis is it's when circumstances become so out of hand that normalcy is not restorable well and the randomness of events I mean that's the thing that I think reading this chapter again also illustrated we're seeing details that we didn't see the first time right Hagrid getting drunk in celebration and then walking back to Hogwarts just at the moment when Harry and Hermione are hiding in the woods the fact that Snape nearly runs in at the same time as Hagrid is exiting all these just completely random moments that could have totally shifted the narrative so I I guess in crisis we see perhaps the true randomness of life without the kind of false decor of order that we impose on it. Okay, so Vanessa, final point. 
help me understand crisis in another way. We've talked about a crisis being a time of intense difficulty or danger, especially with Sirius and Buckbeak, their lives being on the line. We've talked about crisis being a time of a very difficult decision to make, right, in terms of not catching Pettigrew. But I think there's also this idea of crisis as a medical term, crisis being the point when a disease turns and an important change takes place, which indicates either recovery and health or further decline. And I feel like we see that with Harry and the Dementors in this really interesting way where throughout this book, we've seen Harry struggle with casting a Patronus. The only time he's been able to was when it was false Dementors, right? It was the Slytherins dressed up as Dementors. And I feel like there's a really important moment in him casting a full-bodied, strong, powerful stag that saves him and Hermione and Sirius from the Dementors. It's a turning point in the whole arc of the seven books where the skill and the power that Harry needs to save the day continually, like here it is, right? We see that moment of health, of power, of strength emerging in this young young man. Yeah, I mean, the key thing about that to me is when he says, I knew I could do it because I had done it before. Yes, And that, I think, is the great beauty in my life of growing older of, you know, whenever something bad happens to me, I'm like, do you know what? I've survived this before and I'm going to survive it again. And drawing strength from just my own abilities, I think, is where self-confidence comes from and is the greatest gift of growing older. It's building that resiliency and that confidence in yourself. If you have survived something before, you can do it again. If you cast a Patronus before, you can do it again. And it's also great motivation to me to do something for the first time because I'm like, I'm going to be able to draw on this experience again and again and again. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's one of the great lines of the book. Yeah, absolutely. This week, our spiritual practice is sacred imagination. I know it's a particular listener favorite. So settle in, everyone. Make sure that when I read, you close your eyes. Try and imagine yourself into the situation. What kind of smells can you smell? What are you touching? What are you seeing? Unless you're driving, of course, in which case, please be very careful and keep your eyes on the road. But Vanessa, here we go. It's a passage from about halfway through the chapter. Harry pushed the cupboard door open. The entrance hall was deserted. As quietly and as quickly as they could, they darted out of the cupboard and down the stone steps. The shadows were already lengthening, the tops of the trees in the forbidden forest gilded once more with gold. If anyone's looking out of the window, Hermione squeaked, looking up at the castle behind them. We'll run for it, said Harry determinedly. Straight into the forest, all right? We'll have to hide behind a tree or something and keep a lookout. Okay, but we'll go round by the greenhouses, said Hermione breathlessly. We need to keep out of sight of Hagrid's front door, or we'll see us. We must be nearly at Hagrid's now. So, Vanessa, what did you see, or who who were you in this scene? I was Harry, because I feel like this is incredibly disorienting for Harry. Hermione is sort of practiced in the art of the time-turner. She understands what it's like to avoid seeing herself. She understands what to be concerned about with people seeing her, with her seeing herself. But Harry, he's already watched night fall, 
And now it's light out again. And I'm just reminded of those moments where you like go to a movie at five and it's bright out and you come out and it's dark. And you're like, how did time do that? So yeah, I was imagining what it was like to be hairy and to notice that the sun is back on the top of the trees and that shadows are lengthening and what it's like to just orient yourself to a time that makes no sense. Some of the descriptive language I just love, you know, gilded with gold. And it's so interesting that that's a phrase that's applied to the forbidden forest, because even though in this moment we're trying to keep ourselves safe, right, we're not allowed to see ourselves, actually, we're going to an incredibly dangerous place. The forest has already caused so much havoc. I mean, do you want to go back into that, like, army of spiders? No, thank you. And yet the way that we're seeing it through second eyes is like as this place of safety and beauty and, you know, the shadows were already lengthening, the tops of the trees and the forbidden forest gilded once more with gold. There's something really interesting there in terms of making something that was frightening safe by visiting it a second time because they know that nothing is going to come out of the forest this time. So it's okay to go in. I don't know. That really struck me. That's funny because I had the opposite response of how beautiful something can look even when it's really dangerous. Oh. Right? It's like the forest is gilded, but we know that terrible things are about to happen in there. And they're in this high-risk situation where, I mean, Hermione sets the stakes really high. She's like, people have killed themselves. Right. So it feels like there's even more risk. And it's a lie that the forest looks so beautiful and has this sort of like halo around it. The other thing is just thinking about Harry's perspective. You know, when they were first planning to run down to meet Hagrid, they were so careful about how to get there. They were using the invisibility cloak, making sure no one could see them or hear them because Sirius Black is about. But now that they know the truth about Sirius and and really the stakes that are there, Harry doesn't have any qualms about running through both the Great Hall and then through the landscape on the way to the Forbidden Forest. I mean, they're being careful about where to hide and to make sure no one will see them because they don't want to kind of mess up the time turner trick. But there's something really interesting about our perception of danger and safety and how that can shape our willingness to be to be seen. I mean, it makes me think of it's a far cry from coming out, but like when you're comfortable with something that other people seeing it is much more okay than when you're not comfortable with someone seeing something. That sounds extremely obvious, but there's some interesting metaphor maybe here about Harry becoming more and more confident in who he is, right? In the next couple of books, he's going to be more and more the chosen one, right? The boy who lived, the promised hero, the savior. And maybe this is another sign of Harry embodying that more comfortably. Yeah, or it's false confidence with familiarity, right? Mm. I mean, the most dangerous thing that any of us do is get in a car. That is by far the most dangerous thing that we do statistically. And yet, because we're so familiar in a car, we're texting, we're changing the music, we're chatting, we're eating, we're drinking. And yet people feel tremendous anxiety on airplanes or in neighborhoods that they don't really know who's about or they don't know their way. And it's like, well, you're actually much safer in those situations if you're not in a car. But it's just like familiarity breeds comfort, and they've done this before, and so they're more comfortable. And often that is a false confidence. Just because you're comfortable with something doesn't mean that it's safe. And just because you don't know about something certainly doesn't mean that it's dangerous. And I think that we often have to really think about that and be like, okay, just because I'm comfortable in the car, right? Most car accidents happen within a mile of your home, and it's because you've let your guard down. So that's really speaking 
to me again about the description that we're seeing here about the natural scenery. The beautiful gold light on the trees was there before, but they didn't see it. And now that they're back in that space again, they're seeing it really for what's there. Familiarity doesn't just mean that you miss the danger, but it also means you miss the beauty. Because the second time that they're in this scene, they're suddenly seeing the beautiful gilded light on the golden leaves and the tall shadows. And that familiarity can be deadening literally in a car crash, but also metaphorically in our experience of our everyday surroundings. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com Our voicemail this week is from Amina. Hi, Casper and Vanessa. My name is Amina, and I just finished listening to your recent episode on Prisoner of Azkaban, Chapter 19, with the theme of Mercy. Casper mentioned the Islamic principles of mercy, uh, the many names of Allah that have to do with mercy and compassion. And as a Muslim, I was first of all really happy to hear that inclusion, but it was also a bit funny for me and my personal experience as a Muslim when it comes to discussing that aspect of my faith. Islam is very much a religion of mercy, but it's also a religion of justice. And I've found that often when I make that point, it really makes people uncomfortable, non-Muslims especially, and particularly non-Muslim allies. I've even had a professor at my multi-faith theology school ask a class for words they relate to certain religions, and when I said justice for Islam, he, a non-Muslim, basically said, well, maybe compassion instead, as if justice and compassion are mutually exclusive. And I think that is really what it gets down to, this concept that 
mercy and justice are somehow opposites, which I mean is easy enough to buy into when you look at the American criminal justice system, for example, where the word justice often only means punishment and violence and even death rather than compassion or mercy. I have another professor who is a Muslim who uh, is an activist in uh, restorative justice work, which I bring up because I think what happens in the scene where Harry stops Sirius and Remus from killing Pettigrew is a bit of simplified restorative justice. Yes, Harry was showing mercy to Pettigrew and also to Sirius and Remus in that he didn't want his dad's best friends to become killers, but this action was also taken in the name of justice. If they'd killed Pettigrew, then there would be no proof of Sirius's innocence at all. Sirius can't receive the justice that's been owed to him for years without Harry showing this mercy to Pettigrew. Vanessa said that Harry was being Jewish in that moment by taking that particular action, but he was also exhibiting Islamic principles, and I just loved how all of those connections converged in this one episode. Amina, I love your voicemail. I can't believe how much just the language of the criminal justice system in my mind had transformed the word justice into punishment. Thank you so much for pointing that out to me, because really, the opposite of mercy is cruelty, right? It's not justice, exactly as you said. So yeah, I just love that point. And I'm sorry about that episode in the classroom. That's just so unthoughtful. And I think such a a foolish way for right for someone who's an ally to behave is to like tell you about your experience and your own tradition. And obviously, as neither of us are Muslim, I'm really grateful for you bringing this perspective into the show and into the conversation. So thanks for listening. I also really love, I feel like one of our initial conversations about doing this project was you saying this is so Christian and me saying this is so Jewish. And Amina, this is another example where you're saying, no, this is so Muslim. And I just feel like that is inviting everybody to see themselves into this text in a really beautiful way. So thank you. Vanessa, it's time for us to bless someone from the pages of this chapter. Who are you giving your blessing to? I'm going to offer my blessing for Poppy Pomfrey. As you pointed to, she has such a big block of chocolate that she needs a hammer to chip away at it. She's like a boulder of chocolate. And I just imagine that she heard that there were going to be dementors at Hogwarts and was like, I need to bulk buy chocolate. Because usually I feel like you don't have to treat a lot of people with chocolate if there aren't dementors around. I'm guessing she just heard her place in that change of policy and took it upon herself to make sure that she was ready. And it turns out that she needs a lot of chocolate. So thank goodness that she ordered her supplies. So my blessing is for anyone who quietly sees a situation and is just like, well, I'm going to do what I can do about that. And seeing yourself as being part of something really big and complicated and doing something simple can save lives. Casper, who would you like to bless? I have to bless Harry. I think it's an extraordinary thing that he does. I think the moment when he casts the Patronus, he's embodying this vision of himself that he didn't know was possible. And he is seeing his dad again, in a way, in himself. And so I want to offer this blessing to Harry and to anyone who wants to claim the best of their parents or their grandparents. Maybe it's their courage or maybe it's their generosity, just to know that all of those things are in you also and that you can draw on them whenever you want.
You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Please follow us on social media, Facebook, Tumblr, Instagram, and Twitter, and leave us a review on iTunes. You can also send us a voicemail with a blessing for a character. We really love to listen to those. Next week, we'll be reading chapter 22, Owl Post Again, through the theme of love. This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text was produced by Ariana Nettleman, Casper Turkile, and Vanessa Zoltan. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull, and we are part of the Panoply Network. You can find ours and other great shows on panoply.fm. Thanks to Amina Wallace for this week's voicemail, to Rebecca and Charlie Ledley, and to Stephanie Purcell. We'll see you all next week. Bye. It's like my only German. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> How do I say in Dutch? Uh, in, in, in Hollandse. Nope, can't do it. Okay. Je t'aime, mon chéri. Voulez-vous coucher avec moi ce soir? Oui. <laughs> For your 30 seconds, I'd like it completely in Valley Girl. No problem. Okay. Totally fine. Three, two, one, go. <laughs>